welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian Alfred, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Daniel Brooke, a journalist and author whose writing has been published in Harper's, the New York Times Magazine, and The Nation. We will discuss his new book, The Accident of Color, A Story of Race and Reconstruction, which is published by W.W. Norton Company. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I know. It's a great pleasure. I'm so glad that our mutual friend, uh, Ramsey Woodcock, recommended you and your book because I just think it was a, a fascinating uh, exploration of a racial and social context about which I confess I had known very little before reading the book. So congratulations. Oh, yeah. One of the uh, wonderful scholars whose work informs this and predates it, uh, the late, great Ira Berlin, uh, says in his book, um, Slaves Without Masters, the antebellum, free Negro and antebellum America, I believe is the subtitle. Uh, history is to a large degree, the story of the exceptions. And that was a real guide for me. I'm telling the story of two places that are well known, the largest cities actually in the South at the time before the war, but uh, whose racial systems diverge widely from the Anglo-American norm. Mm, mm. Yeah. So, I mean, the book focuses on both the sort of antebellum period as well as the kind of post-war Jim Crow period, like looking at African-American communities and their sort of political relationships to the law and and racial prejudice. But really specifically, as you say, looking at two cities, uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and Charleston, South Carolina. So what was it about those cities that made them unique in antebellum America? In antebellum times, both of these cities have a much blurrier color line than is the norm, uh, not just in the rest of America, but even in the rest of the South, particularly in the rural South. New Orleans is an easier case to understand. New Orleans is literally a Latin American city before it's an American city. It's founded as a colony of France, changes hands. It's for many years, a colony of Spain, and then it's purchased by the United States, and its Americanization begins at that point with the purchase. Like other Latin American cities, it has a blurry racial line. That doesn't mean there's not widespread colorism. It doesn't mean that your life isn't better if you have lighter skin, lighter eyes, lighter hair than it is if you have darker skin, darker eyes, darker hair. But there's not a firm distinction between quote unquote, black people and quote unquote, white people. It's understood that this kind of new world society is, wi is widely mixed. And the only question is what one's particular mixture is. Charleston is a slightly trickier city to explain. It is, of course, founded as an Anglo-American colony, much like the other 13 colonies. But it is much more deeply rooted and tied to the Caribbean than the other colonies. Fully six of the governors of the Carolina colony, which in colonial times is headquartered in Charleston, between 1670 and 1730 are immigrants from Barbados, not immigrants from England. Uh, and the racial system that's more prevalent on the Caribbean islands, again, with widespread acknowledgement of racial mixing, uh, does infiltrate the city of Charleston. While in the rest of America, interracial relationships are rampant, but denied. Uh, in Charleston and New Orleans, they're largely acknowledged. So you have, in both cities, you end up with a mixed-race community 
whose racial self-conception is less, we're neither black nor white, but in a sense, we are both black and white. In New Orleans, these people call themselves, or come to be known as the Creoles of color. In Charleston, they're actually known as the Browns with a capital B, and that's their own term. They self-identify as brown rather than black or white. And they typically, in both cities, the mixed race people, free people typically have good relationships with both their uh, white relatives and their non-white relatives. It's only with the Civil War and the Reconstruction and the collapse of Reconstruction that these families split along racial lines and disown each other. Right. So maybe you could talk a little bit about this kind of social milieu of late uh, 18th century and very early 19th century New Orleans and Charleston, and the kind of social role or social position of these Creoles of color in New Orleans and Browns in Charleston. Like, What was life like for them and sort of what social role did they have within the society of, of both of those cities? Sure. Both of these communities are kind of the heart of the middle class. Uh, they do a lot of skilled labor, um, things ranging from sort of the, the lower end of skilled labor, like brickwork and, and rope making, to the higher ends, including uh, you know some architects even, um, often in the building trades, uh, working at the port in both cities. And they fit in as well into these cities because these are both port cities, and they do have a wide array of ethnic groups much, much sooner than the rest of the United States does, even port cities that we think of, uh, you know, like Boston and New York and Philadelphia in the North. Uh, there's a full kind of color continuum on the streets of these cities. Uh, New Orleans, of course, has large communities from Southern Europe, uh, France and Spain. Uh, both cities take in huge influxes from, the, uh, from Haiti after the Haitian Revolution, people of, of a wide variety of Indones from from the Haitian island, um, Haitian half of the island, I should say, um, and then you know Charleston actually kind of surprising fact to many Americans, um, you know, has the largest Jewish community in the country until around 1830 when New York becomes the most Jewish city in America. Title it still holds to this day. So there's a, a, a wide ethnic variety into these cities into which these two communities that are neither black nor white can fit. Uh, as time goes on, as we get into uh, 1840s, 1850s, there are more and more race-based restrictions. Uh, and I think this here, Edmund Morgan, who wrote American Slavery, American Freedom, had it right, which is that in a society that is now self-consciously democratic, where all, quote unquote, all men are created equal, slavery becomes increasingly defended on the basis of racial inequality. And once you start arguing that People of African descent are inherently inferior uh, through uh, inheritance. It's very difficult to splice out free people of color from enslaved people of color. Uh, and by the time you get 1857 with the Dred Scott decision, the rights of these mixed race people are revoked by the United States Supreme Court. I should mention in abrogation of the actual treaty of the Louisiana Purchase, which guarantees the rights of all citizens will be retained after the purchase. Wow. Yeah. Well, when one of the things that struck me in in the book was that, you know, significant numbers of these Creoles of color and, and Browns were actually slave owners. And it seems like that, among many other 
aspects of their kind of social role within their respective communities sort of inflected how they were understood and treated uh, as slavery became increasingly racialized in the mid 19th century. Is, is that right? Yeah, um, they are. There is significant levels of slave ownership in both of these communities. There's a wonderful document created by Carter Woodson, um, the founder of, I mean, widely regarded as the founder of African-American history and also African-American history month um, published in the 1930s, uh, which just catalogs the 1830 census and the uh, non-white slaveholders that are documented in it. And that in the appendix has the, it's an amazing work, especially before big data and computers. I, I can't imagine how many graduate students of his were in the toiling in the mines on this, but every, literally every non-white slaveholder in America is cataloged by county. And you'll see whole states like Alabama, Florida, don't even take up a page. Virtually every slave owner in those states are, are white. Uh, and then you get to Louisiana and South Carolina, and particularly Charleston and New Orleans. And you will find more slave owners of color in individual neighborhoods in Charleston and New Orleans than you will find in entire Southern states. So their relationship with slavery um, is different than their relationship with race. And, you know, in the, in the Caribbean context, this is not as fraught. In the American context, as slavery becomes increasingly racialized, this becomes more and more fraught by the dawn, by the, the era of secession there are moves uh, in, in many states to actually revoke the right of non-white people to own slaves. Yeah, yeah. And, wh- and why would that be? I mean, sort of, if you could dig a little bit more into it, like, what specifically about kind of people perceived as non-white being slave owners in a racialized society, why would that have been ideologically like a trouble point? Uh, I think, you know, again, with this Edmund Morgan argument that once, uh, you know, the U.S., there are slave societies all over the New World, but the U.S. is unique in that after the revolution, it's it supplants a system based on, you know, the, in- the eternal inequality between, say, me and the Queen of England with a system based on the equality of all. All of a sudden, it needs a new way to justify slavery. You know, in a system in Brazil, where there's the King of Portugal, King of Portugal is is better than the slave owner. The slave owner is better than the slave. It's not, there's not the ideological inconsistency that there is in the United States after the revolution. And that's when the racial ideology that Africans are enslaved because Africans are inferior to Europeans becomes stronger and stronger. And you see it building. Uh, Initially, the communities that I'm writing about in Charleston and New Orleans kind of cozy up to their white slave owning relatives uh, in the hope that they can stave off this full racialization. Uh, and that becomes incre- increasingly clear that that's futile. And then in Reconstruction, they end up in a political alliance with the formerly enslaved to ensure equal rights for all, uh, to basically take this system that was founded on universal equality uh, and kind of deracialize it. Uh, in some ways, you can say that this is uh, the you know making making the making the American system live its values, um, but at the same time, you can also need to acknowledge that the reason uh, racialization got so extreme 
in the society seems intimately intertwined with the egalitarian rhetoric of the revolution and how to justify slavery in a post-revolutionary society. Right, right. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about how these communi- communities experienced both secession and the Civil War? Like, what were their initial reactions? And did those reactions or some kind of self-positioning change over time? Sure, yeah, they, they change radically. Initially, they positioned themselves as allies of the white slaveholding elite. Um, you could interpret this purely as a kind of property rights self-interest. These communities do own slaves themselves. Uh, they have no more interest in seeing those enslaved people go free. Or be, you know, or have to be paid wages to do the chores uh, and tasks they were doing than than the white slave owners, um, and it's as simple as that. I think it's not as simple as that. I think at this late date, um, there's a real uh, attempt to kind of ingratiate the communities with the the powers that be in a kind of last ditch attempt. And there's a lot of almost what sounds to me like almost over the top pro slavery rhetoric coming out of both of these communities at the time to kind of prove their loyalty, which is suspicious on racial grounds. Um, and they are, to an extent, kind of made um, made uh, an example of in kind of in Southern propaganda. Look, we have these non-white um, citizens who support secession and slavery. Uh, very quickly, it, pr- it becomes clear that this is not, um, this is not going to work. Uh, and as the, the tide of the war changes, um, and as the cities themselves become are under attack the mixed race free people are among the first very first to start fighting for the union uh often quite heroically uh and and they end up leading this fight to 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 make a to make the the country a full republic with equal rights for all they're a wildly disproportionate number of uh representatives in the reconstruction period in the republican party uh in in the state legislatures and governments, even in Congress. Uh, at one point, there are actually three brown Charlestonians in the United States Congress, all representing different districts of South Carolina. Um, and th- that's how they uh, develop over time. Mm. So how did these communities then experience the Reconstruction era, at least initially? I mean, it sounds like they were kind of politically well represented, especially in the early years of Reconstruction when the Republican Party was more aggressive about sort of pushing Reconstruction policies. But but as you point out, there was almost like this sort of guerrilla war with the Confederacy reconstituting itself in kind of nominally non-army form, but nonetheless accomplishing many of the same goals, like sort of how did these communities negotiate um, the Reconstruction era? And did their approach change as Reconstruction started seeming to be less effective? At at the very start of Reconstruction, there is still some reticence to fully identify with the emancipated, uh, the the freedmen um, this, these terms now that you you begin to see right after emancipation is freemen and freedmen. So freemen are free people of, who are of color who were free before the war. Freedmen is everybody who was emancipated, you know, in the course of the war and 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 the, the Union victory. There's an initial reticence to sort of fully identify for the freemen to have fully identify with the freedmen, and that disappears very quickly. Um, they enter into a very strong political alliance. Um, and at the height of Reconstruction, it's working quite successfully 
particularly in the places I'm writing about, where you do have a large antebellum free people of color population uh, that has has wealth and connections and education, uh, the, the, a lot of the prerequisites necessary for, you know, say running for statewide office. Uh, as Reconstruction begins to collapse, uh, these communities get fully uh, under Jim Crow lumped in with the, the freemen and freedmen are exactly the same person by the end of, by the, uh, under the Jim Crow laws. Uh, so in some ways that seals the alliance. In another way, this idea, which is again, new to both of these cities, or at least belatedly arriving to each of these cities that one is either black or white, not, not mixed, uh, also forces each of the, uh, members of these communities who are, you know, of of every physical shade of every hair color and hair texture and eye color uh, to decide where on this line they are going to place themselves. Uh, and every family and every, indeed every individual faces a crisis at the rise of Jim Crow uh, and different people do different things. Um, you know, some, of course, some, uh, some of these characters are characters, people in my book, individuals who lived are, you know, physically, it's impossible for them to pass for white, but many of them, it, it is possible. Some heroically, you know, continue to identify as African-American and continue to lead that community. Others uh, flee the South and flee blackness and pass for white, including some of the major uh, figures in Reconstruction civil rights battles. Um, Homer Plessy, the most famous civil rights plaintiff of all, uh, in the 1910 census is recorded as being black and in the 1920 census is recording as, as being white. Uh, it's not clear whether he was trying to pass or the census taker was confused, but uh, Arnold Bertineau, the first named plaintiff in a federal school desegregation case from New Orleans, he does move to California and become a white man and joins the Pasadena Valley Hunt Club and whites only social club that runs the Rose Bowl parade um, and his great grandson is a member of the alt-right. So some people really double down uh, on, on whiteness uh, under this binary. Yeah. I mean, it really struck me that like this kind of fine grain distinction that you point to between freedmen and freemen and this sort of like internal kind of ideological self-conceptions of these different communities just couldn't be maintained when kind of self-defined white communities no longer recognized those distinctions. And so, you know, in a sense, it's like you had to sort of acknowledge how you were going to be defined by the sort of powers that be, as it were, in a way that wasn't consistent with the sort of way those social relationships had been defined previously. Is that right? Yeah. And there's also, it's important to say, a widening of whiteness in this era at the beginning of Jim Crow. Uh, where all of these categories of people in the cities that didn't really have to firmly uh, be identified on a black-white binary all of a sudden did. And generally, that there's a general move to kind of dump everyone else into the white category in order to uh, unite against, you know, African-American slash Republican political power. Uh, and you see this in very kind of ham-fisted debates uh, like the French language newspaper in New Orleans has a debate or has a, has an editorial about why Spaniards are white. So there, there's a significant Spanish from Spain community in the city, you know, dating to the Spanish colonial times. Uh, the paper acknowledges that 
you know, Spain was an African colony for much of the Middle Ages that the Moors had, from Morocco had conquered it, uh, no doubt had mixed in with the locals rampantly. Uh, but the paper decides that uh, Arabs are white. They just are spend so much time in the sun that they get darker. So if Arabs are white, then Spaniards can be white, even if they're part Arab. Uh, so all of these groups kind of get, get pushed into a white or black category and you get a sort of narrowing of blackness to one drop uh, rule, which only is invented in the 1850s. That's a very new concept uh, in this era. Uh, and then this very wide definition of white people, uh, you know, to include Hispanics and Arabs and Jews and et cetera uh, at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, so what happened toward the end of Reconstruction as there was sort of this push on the part of Southern governments to reintroduce the kinds of racialized laws that, you know, they'd been trying to impose or had imposed previously sort of in a different form through, through Jim Crow? I mean, here, here I, this is something I try to be careful about in my language in the book, and it's hard because of how, you know, the, the, the society we all live in. Um, but what's happening is there's a, a, a supplanting in this period of a distinction between slave and free with a distinction of black and white. So that it's, it's the, the, the conflation, if we, when we conflate blackness and whiteness with slave, with slave and free in the antebellum period, we're in some ways doing the work that, um, the segregationists were attempting to do when in fact, as these communities show the there was a lot of slippage or a fair amount of slippage and in these cities a lot of slippage between blackness and whiteness and enslavement and freedom in the antebellum period so i think that's important for to head around right yeah no absolutely and so you know when that sort of shift was implemented in a sense by southern society like how did these African-American communities, uh, whether they sort of traced themselves back to the Creoles of color or Browns or traced themselves back to sort of being freed people as opposed to always having been free people, sort of how did they push back against that that shift? What did they do? I mean, you, you point to a lot of different areas, including like, like streetcars and an education in particular. Yeah, almost everything you see in the 1960s civil rights movement, all, almost all of the methods, the legal test cases, boycotts, uh, sit-ins and civil disobedience, almost all of these protests uh, against segregation that are more famous in the mid-20th century occurred in the 18, late 1860s, early 1870s, um, and were quite successful uh, in the places I'm writing about. I mean, the streetcars of New Orleans were and Charleston were both desegregated in 1867. They're only resegregated in 1902 and 1912, respectively. So they're desegregated for you know, generations, uh, only to be resegregated once uh, whiteness and blackness have been firmly defined. Uh, similarly, the, the police department, same same situation. They're both desegregated during Reconstruction, and then are only fully resegregated in the early 20th century. Uh, so you see all the same forms of resistance that we know from the 1960s uh, in the in this period in the 1860s and 1870s. What is unique to this period, I argue, is a critique of race itself and a skepticism of race itself. A case like Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Uh, that is a case where the plaintiffs are arguing that 
the children of Topeka, Kansas can be divided into African and European or black and white, but that those two groups of students should be treated equally. The cases I'm writing about from the 1870s are arguing that Americans cannot be cleanly divided into African and European any more than, say, Mexicans or Brazilians can be. Those are places that don't even attempt this type of racial divide. Uh, the claim of the disproportionately Creole of color and brown activists who are bringing legal test cases is is that Americans are mixed, and that there are no there can be no hard and fast racial distinctions between them. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could describe a little bit, like as a vignette in a sense of sort of how the streetcar to desegregation programs or uh, or uh, campaigns actually worked and sort of what happened that led for this shift from segregation to desegregation and then back to segregation again? Sure. Yeah. Um, in, in Charleston, you have this, this wonderful story that I, that I was fortunate enough to be able to tell about a woman named Mary P. Bowers, who is uh, the parallels to Rosa Parks are just uncanny. You know, she gets on the streetcar, she takes her seat. She says she's too tired after a long day of work to, to, to pay her fare and strap hang on the outside, which is actually the rule for African-American passengers in Charleston. Uh, she's thrown off the car. She says she's going to make a, a formal legal complaint. She takes her complaint to the Freedmen's Bureau, which is the federal government's equal rights agency under Reconstruction, makes a formal complaint, and the union authorities back her. Uh, and within two weeks, the streetcars of Charleston have been desegregated. In New Orleans, you have some uh, wildcat sit-ins on streetcars. You have a large mass rally of African-American uh, uh, African American citizens on Congo Square, just the main, historically main African-American gathering space in the city, just outside of the French Quarter. And again, uh, within a matter of weeks, the streetcar company presidents have caved to the demands of the activists and the federal government's reconstruction authorities. Uh, in New Orleans, you have a very unlikely champion of equal rights, which is the former Confederate General Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, PGT Beauregard, the man who orders the first shot of the Civil War, fired on Fort Sumter. Um, and he has a very interesting backstory that I think explains some of his uh, surprising sympathy for civil rights after the war. Um, he is a uh, ostensibly a white Creole. He claims uh, French and Italian ancestry. Um, he's, you know, physically very dark skinned and he's accused of, he's called the N word when he returns to new Orleans after the war on the street, um, does not respond. Uh, there's some claims that the accuser was drunk, uh, and then kind of moves on with his life, but becomes much more sympathetic to civil rights. And in defending his decision to accede to the demand that his streetcar company be desegregated, he's running the St. Charles Avenue streetcar line as the company president after the war, he gives the line that gives the title to the book, which says that, you know, when you ride the streetcars of New Orleans, you're riding in the company of thieves, gamblers, and prostitutes, people with far more, far graver sins to answer for than the accident of color. Uh, And I think this blurry color line in the city, especially with physically with people like Beauregard, whose race, whose whiteness is being challenged after the war and whose own story, you know, is that he's from the, uh, European side of the roots are all on the European side of the Mediterranean is in doubt, uh, really, you know, provides the possibilities for equal rights in the places I'm writing about that just did not exist uh, in the rural South or even in much of America. 
we kind of forget in the multicultural America we're living in today that uh, cities, even diverse, relatively diverse cities uh, like Boston or New York in this period are basically filled with people from the British Isles, maybe a smattering from Germany, and then some people from sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, there is physically just a stark color line in those cities in a way that there isn't in the places I'm writing about with people like General Beauregard of ostensibly French and Italian descent. Mm. So in your book, you kind of close more or less with Plessy D. Ferguson and the resegregation of the streetcar lines. How did that happen? Like, what was the shift that made the earlier desegregation, successful desegregation campaigns, no longer able to kind of hold out against this renewed racialization? I think in the places I'm writing about, uh, this expansion of whiteness is key. So a figure like Beauregard is, in a sense, bought off through whiteness. Uh, In the period right after the war, his whiteness is in question. He decides that he'll be safer. He and his descendants are going to be safer in an America with equal rights, regardless of color. As whiteness expands to encompass more and more racial groups, uh, in some sense, you know, getting to the point where we are today, where the actual federal definition of a white person is anyone having origins in the original people of Europe, North Africa, or the Middle East, very, very broad, uh, sort of broad spectrum whiteness, much broader than is used in any other uh, country, certainly in Europe, um, that that allows whiteness to congeal into uh, a majority, even in these, even in these places and kind of box out uh, everybody uh, with, with ostensibly one drop or more of African descent. Right. Well, Daniel, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on what your work helps us better understand about sort of different conceptions of race and racialization and how those concepts change, developed over time, both in antebellum and reconstruction era United States. Sort of like if you were to give like a takeaway for sort of what you learned and what you hope readers or listeners will take away, what would you point to? There's a mystery at the heart of the American experience. We often draw a straight line between slavery, even in 1619, and racial inequality in 2019 today. Uh, And when you look at slavery in his comparative perspective, you see that that's just not possible. I mean, you look at all of the other New World slave societies, um, particularly Brazil is usually the, the main, the classic counterexample. Brazil imported approximately 10 times as many enslaved Africans as the United States did but it never imposed Jim Crow and it never conceived of itself as having a, a group of Brazilians who are white and a group of Brazilians who are black. It always acknowledged that there were there, that these groups in the new world had been mixing for centuries uh, and that there was a full color cons- color spectrum. The fact that the U S after centuries of enslavement followed this with legal Jim Crow and a, and a racial concept that denied the, ob- the very obvious uh, r- racial mixing that had taken place, I think, is is central to the racial issues that this, the country struggles with to this day. That's not to say there aren't racial issues in all post-slavery societies in the New World. Um, but you know, if you just look at the data, it, our system is so much starker. I mean, if you go to a, a poor neighborhood in Colombia you find people are generally darker 
there are fewer lighter people, there are more darker people, but there's nothing like the kind of census tracts we have in the United States created through Jim Crow and redlining where you'll have 98.8% of the population is black. And that kind of segregation is only possible in a society that is that is willing to to bury how mixed it really is. That that's the that's how retracing this history really changed the way I see America. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Daniel, and congratulations on this excellent book. Thank you so much. Thank you.